Hello, the internet, and welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I am your very busy host, Anthony. Today we're going to talk about classical scholarship, and specifically philology, uh, that is study, uh, research, publication on classical texts, and in our particular case on Greek classical texts, basically any text from Greek antiquity. This is an extraordinary field compared to the fields that study any other body of literature. And it is extraordinarily privileged, too, and among the most advanced uh, in the world. So classicists often don't appreciate this, but the fact that their texts have been edited so carefully, often many times, you know, from the manuscripts to produce published editions with critical apparatus and discussion of the manuscripts and variants and all of that, that they have been commented on repeatedly so they're not only commentaries and studies and lexica, but there's this entire dedicated apparatus of scholarship around them that makes studying them both easy and a joy and accessible to so many people who don't have to travel to manuscript archives or libraries abroad in order to find that one manuscript of the text that, you know, maybe someone else looked at 30 years ago and where you can't identify many of the words and there's very little support in terms of dictionaries and encyclopedias and commentaries to help you work through it. Many other fields are in that precise situation, but not classics. <laughs> Greece has enjoyed a very, very privileged position in the history of, sort of philology generally. In fact, it's been a pioneer. Uh, so many of the techniques and methodologies and technologies that have evolved through the study of texts often did so in classical studies first and were then disseminated uh, to other fields. Fragments have been collected. Author biographies have been exhaustively studied. Dates, inscriptions, papyri, everything has been collected, um, often digitized, made accessible and available. It's an extraordinary privileged position to be in. And Classicists often take all of that for granted today. In other words, this entire edifice, which is wonderful and complex and uh, a monument of scholarship, is there and it's available and it's ready for them to use. And yeah, they take it for granted. They often don't know where it all comes from, how it was constructed, what are the elements, the primary elements, the, the material things from which... Um, uh, all these materials were assembled, like you rarely actually go and see that inscription, that stone that has the text on it, or that book, that manuscript, uh, which is often a specialized collection, in, possibly in Europe, which has the text that you, you may study for decades, but you never actually go and look and feel the, the manuscript. And you're, you're kind of cut off from that almost. And this is where our topic today comes into the picture. Many classicists like to believe that the society that they study, ancient Greece, down to, I don't know, the early empire, was something very, very separate from what they know as Byzantium, um, that Byzantium rests on a different set of values, uh, as a, both as a state and as a civilization with its own literary, religious you know, values. They often don't pay much attention to it, learn little about it, and sometimes even think of it as the antithesis of what they work on. Uh, you know, so there are certain images associated with classical Greece that often attract people to study ancient Greek texts and ancient Greek culture, and those are perceived to be very, very different from those of Byzantium, and you have to be interested in very different sorts of things in order to be drawn to that. Classics is a much larger and much more prestigious and well-funded and well-organized field in comparison to Byzantine studies. And that is sort of evident to anyone who's part of both and sort of feels the, that gap, uh, as I am. And yet, there's a certain sense, and I think it's a very important one, a primary one, in fact, in which classics is essentially a part of Byzantine studies, it just doesn't know it. 
um, it's almost an annex to Byzantine studies, it's something that emerges from Byzantium. And why do I say this? Well, on a certain obvious level, almost all of the manuscripts that we have of classical authors are Byzantine ones, and in particular late Byzantine ones, sometimes middle Byzantine. We very, very rarely have ancient access to ancient texts, like from a papyrus or something like that. The classical texts that we have are those that Byzantine writers and readers decided to preserve and comment on. You know, not just copy, but study and talk about and add value to. And it's not just that. A great deal of the technology that is involved in classical philology is of Byzantine origin. To mention some very obvious things, the codex form, the book, right? That, like, so when you pick up a text, a classical text um, today, like the only part of it that is distinctively modern is that it has been printed, uh, right, in a, in a press, and that the pages are standardized, um, and that the apparatus criticus is more explicit and systematized. It is a whole discipline that has evolved primarily in modern times. But if you compare it to the way in which books were read and studied in antiquity, you will realize how decisive the Byzantine contribution was here. So the shift from the role to the codex, the invention of small case letters, the gradual systematization of um, accents and you know, uh, punctuation, the conversion of commentaries into scolia. That is, instead of having a commentary that was a separate book that course, you know, that drew your attention to passages in the text and had the little scolia, the scolia were put in the margins, uh, almost as kind of footnotes that can be placed on any part of the page. Um, and the collection of texts of authors together, sometimes even prefaced with a biography of the author, uh, as we'll talk about in this episode, um, those are Byzantine innovations um, that were applied to the selection of classical texts that were most meaningful to Byzantine readers and writers and therefore survived to our time. The, the contribution is decisive. And in a certain sense, the classical canon is a Byzantine invention and classical philology as practiced today has a continual history that, yes, goes back to antiquity, uh, but can be accessed most directly starting in its Byzantine phase. My guest today is Filippo Maria Pontani, who is a professor at the Kafoskari University of Venice. He is an expert on many aspects of Greek and Byzantine philology, but has especially worked on Byzantine classical scholarship, that is, the ways in which Byzantine scholars and philologists engaged with classical texts and wrote commentaries on them and taught them and so forth. He has done some extraordinary work on this topic. Um, and what really inspired me to invite him onto the podcast, I, I, I wanted to do so for a long time, but I finally read a, a long survey that he wrote of scholarship in the Byzantine Empire uh, which is um, a 150-page contribution to a larger volume called A History of uh, Ancient Greek Scholarship from the Beginnings to the End of the Byzantine Age. It is a magisterial survey, not only of who wrote what, when, and how, but of the kind of fundamental modes in which uh, classical texts were interpreted and studied and understood uh, in uh, Byzantine society, including the social role that all of this activity played and how important it is for um, understanding our own place in the classical tradition um, and the Byzantine contribution to it, which was significant. Classicists, you're all Byzantinists, but don't know it. Okay, we'll get straight to the interview. Uh, thanks also to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes. Um, and here's my conversation with Filippo Maria Pontani. Filippo Maria, it's a pleasure to meet you and welcome to the podcast. Hello. Good afternoon. So you've done some amazing work and I want to 
to briefly explain what it is to the audience, in addition to granular technical work on Byzantine texts and Byzantine classical scholarship, you've also written a really magnificent survey of Byzantine classical scholarship in a volume called A History of Ancient Greek Scholarship. And it's a chapter that's like, it's 150 pages. Uh, so it could be a separate book, right? Uh, uh, it's oh, well. called Scholarship in the Byzantine Empire. And now I've dabbled in this before, but like amateur, in an amateurish way compared to what you've done. And so it's a really, really magnificent survey. Um, and I want to thank you for it because I've been trying for years <laughs> to get my classicist colleagues to understand the importance of this material. Um, and you just, you can keep saying it again and again and again, but, you know, there's still this kind of a idea among many classicists, especially I think in the Anglo-American tradition, where they work less with ma the manuscripts and the, mm -hmm. the scolia and the things like this, that, you know, classical texts are just a sort of thing that we have. And there's well, not a hit. It, it's not only in the Anglo-Saxon tradition or Anglo-American tradition, actually. Uh, it is also pretty much rooted in the European tradition due to the German influence, so German influence in the 19th century, where uh, despite some notable work, of course, carried out in manuscripts, uh, the idea that uh, the Byzantine world was something, uh, so to speak, inferior was uh, quite uh, widespread. And uh, the Italian tradition, for example, which is now over the last few decades reacting to this, has also been shaped by some important personalities who share this view. I mean, Giorgio Pasquale, probably the most important influential uh, classical philologist of the 20th century in Italy, and certainly one of the most important in Europe, uh, he was also uh, convinced that Byzantium was basically a, uh, it was not much worth studying. I mean, of course, yes, you could look into the problems of manuscripts, uh, but just for the sake of studying what the manuscripts actually uh, contained rather than uh, the environment from where they came from and the meaning they had, the historical meaning they could have. So this is uh, a prejudice that is hard to die. And uh, thanks God, I think in recent, recent decades, at least in Europe, it's, uh, and particularly in Italy, I would say, there are many colleagues writing and working in this field, and, uh, but of course, I mean, I must say, you were very generous uh, with my chapter. Uh, I must say that this is also an attempt to uh, update and to, to some extent rewrite Nigel Wilson's very important work on, on scores of Byzantium, which is always a model, yes. will always remain. Uh, it's just that uh, he had this sort of British attitude to uh, keep the footnotes to a minimum and uh, to, I, I just tried to implement some more information, of course, updates. And, 30 years have elapsed, and, uh, but also give some more precise references where uh, he tended to be more, I mean, he's, he's, he's a well science, uh, but uh, sometimes perhaps some more detailed uh, references can be useful for, for scholars, but also parameters. Yeah, so looking back to questions of interpretation and, and you know, what we make of this material um, at the end, but I want to give our readers, uh, sorry, audience, <laughs> uh, ingrained habit. Um, a kind of sense of what it is that we're dealing with. Uh, so let's start with some basic uh, questions. And that is, what sorts of things did Byzantine writers or scholars do with ancient texts such that we can place them in, indeed that we should place them in the long tradition of classical scholarship? This was more than just copying the texts so that we have them. Um, right. In other words, they weren't doing what they were doing in order to make sure that we have classical texts. They were doing things for their own sake. So what were they doing with classical texts, broadly speaking? They were doing all sorts of things. Basically, I mean, transcribing is not an, an easy task. I mean, right. just imagine, I think that one of the most amazing philological tasks of all times has been the transliteration work. Uh, if you imagine just simply uh, putting, I mean, changing the, the script from uh, from the script to your continuum, from the continuous script, magical script, without any uh, signs, without any uh, word division, uh, into the new format of manuscript script between the 8th and 9th, 9th century uh, of the current era has been a huge work, which has required a huge amount of expertise on, on the part of, of scribes, most of whom are anonymous, but this is, uh, but this is, a, I would say, a constant thing throughout the Byzantine millennium. And this is something that I wanted to highlight in this chapter that we are always, uh, or 
often, I mean, the, the, the scholar, modern scholars are always keen on saying, oh, Photius or Eustathius, the big names of Byzantine philology. But in fact, there is a plethora of uh, hardly known or mostly anonymous scribes who have done amazing jobs in interpreting and, and uh, with, I mean, interpreting and solely understanding and giving a, a, a new shape uh, to, to these texts every time they copied. Of course, this is not true for all manuscripts, but there are lots of manuscripts that are striking in, in this respect. And so I think this is, uh, even the transcription is, is, a, is an amazing philological work. And of course comes, come all the other kind of, of approaches like commentaries, like uh, editions, because they, they did, did produce, I mean, Maximus Planudus did produce in the th late 13th century, produce uh, what can be regarded at all effects, uh, critical editions of Plutarch or of uh, Diophantus or of many prose and uh, poetry. Um, uh, poetic authors uh, uh, who we still uh, read today thanks to these editions, not only thanks to his transcriptions, but thanks to his edition, which is a different thing. Yeah. So and, there are all kinds, of, and, and commentary, of course. I mean, I mean, and commentaries are are also a, a genre that has developed independently in different traditions, of course, in throughout the world. But the Byzantines were very, very good at that. Some, some very important. I mean, the most important, longest commentaries to Homer that are preserved to this day have been written in the 12th century, and uh, and and uh, they. It's it's just that it's a mentality of writing commentaries that could uh, not only explain a text, but also give, give as much information as possible to often a school audience uh, on the text and on all the background of that text and all the possible links. This is an approach that is to us can be obvious to a certain extent, but uh, for them at that time was even in Latin quarters and Western quarters was not that obvious at all. And, uh, and that we, find, we do find in, uh, in Byzantium. Uh, and then more of this, of course, there are many other other uh, tools of uh, lexica, for example. I mean, how important uh, the, the uh, there are in Greek uh, some lexica, uh, so refined lexica that we have pains at finding, for example, in Latin tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, if you imagine, uh, of course, there again, what you were saying before, classical philosophers are mostly interested in finding fragments of ancient authors uh, that are uh, somehow concealed in, in or quoted in these lexica. But the lexica as such are uh, uh, an amazing enterprise, just, just because, of course, every lexicon, every dictionary grows out of pre-existing dictionaries. This has always been this, the case. But in, in, in Byzantium, you have uh, this sense of a, of a tradition that is every single time reworked, added on, and uh, it's not simply copied or handed over. I mean, there are some, the etymological lexica uh, blend uh, interest for etymology, interest for uh, the meaning of words, interest, interest for their grammatical aspect, for their grammatical orthography. And, uh, and some of these uh, lexica are very, very big, are incredibly bulky for our standards. And they convey a huge amount of information that even on the epistemological level is, is really hard to compare with with uh, even with uh, similar productions in in other contemporary cultures. Yes, uh, sometimes when classicists say a later source, <laughs> they usually referring to a Byzantine lexicon or sort of just something mm -hmm. like this. Um, <clears throat> so you already mentioned things like the what a layperson would call a small case script and the transliteration of ancient texts into that on in the codex form, right in a book. Uh, often with some diacritical marks, uh, you know, depending spaces between words occasionally. <laughs> um, so what are some other innovations of Byzantine classical scholarship, uh, things that they did either they were their first to do or did very well that aren't very well known? Well, for example, one thing that happens uh... Certainly, it's hard to say if they did invent this, but certainly they, they did it massively, was to produce a format of book, which is very common even nowadays, namely uh, a, a book that has uh, a text uh, in the middle and uh, on the margins, uh, uh, the, uh, columns of, of comments, of commentaries of various kinds, of notes of various kinds. Uh, what are normally known as a scolia, for example. I mean, the format of uh, ancient texts uh, 
that have land on the same page, uh, sometimes very few lines of text and surrounded by, uh, by uh, notes uh, of different periods and different age. This is something uh, that is extremely important both for them and for us. It is important for them because of course it, it shows their uh, ambition to, uh, to gather in one in the same place as much information as possible on that text, uh, which means that that text was read and was, uh, was studied and was, uh, it's clearly there were lots of, of readers who wanted to know as much as possible in that text. And of course, very important for us also, because uh, in this process, uh, they, what happens normally, again, in every exegetical enterprise, you tend to, uh, to uh, gather in the same place bits and pieces of different uh, commentaries of different notes from different uh, um, people and from, sometimes from different ages. Mm. And uh, for example, this, uh, the rise of marginal scolia is something that uh, is, a, is a practice that has led to, to amazing results. I mean, I, I can just quote the, uh, probably one of the most impressive manuscripts, uh, Greek manuscripts that are preserved. It's preserved about 400 meters from where I'm speaking now in Venetus. <laughs> the Venetus A, uh, it's a manuscript of the Iliad, a former Iliad. Uh, which is uh, equipped with, uh, it's a manuscript of the ninth century, late ninth century, um, which is equipped with a, a, a mass of, of uh, marginal scolia uh, that is, of course, they are really unique in terms of content. They, are, they have the, uh, they, they have whatever, they carry almost whatever we know about Alexandrian philology because these, these scolia, these notes, go back uh, for the most part to the um, tradition of commentaries and notes uh, written in Alexandria in the third century BCE. So it's amazing that such an, an impressive, a bulky and ambitious book should be produced produced uh, with the text of Homer and with commentaries that were some, some uh, 12, 1200 years old. And right. they were really read and they are extremely important for us because it's the only place uh, where we uh, know what uh, the philologists of uh, Alexandria uh, uh, back in the Hellenistic times thought about every single passage of Homer. And the, the way, the layout of this book, uh, the, it is immensely difficult to figure out how to refer on the same page to every single line, these, the uh, corresponding notes and mm. how every, no, every line has more than one note. And so you have to put this in the margins, in between, between the margins and the text. It's uh, a chiseling sort of, mm. which must have taken ages to complete and the results, the final results, uh, again, even beyond the content, even in, in terms of form is, is bordering on perfection. And this is, uh, <laughs> and we don't know, have no idea who on earth has done this. And this right, is right. amazing, we have no name uh, attached to this enterprise, but uh, that's what I was saying before. Uh, it is these anonymous enterprises to which we owe so much, but they were clearly done because there was someone paying for them and someone uh, caring for these texts. Yeah, so the audience should imagine sometimes um, the page, so when you were referring to marginal comments and scholarly and so on, it's almost like a page that has footnotes, but in all of the mar margins. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's kind of something like that. Um, but I, I encourage the audience to go look up the, the manuscript of Venetus, say, um, just kind of see some of its pages online, what it looks like. It's a really beautiful production. So to keep things in perspective, can you tell us some things that uh, Byzantine scholars did not do with classical texts that we might associate today with like a, it's a fundamental mode of classical scholarship? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, every every discipline uh, has its its history, and so clearly we now we are now uh, we are now deep in in the sort of. Uh, 19th century uh, positivistic mood. Now it's almost old fashioned uh, nowadays, but we certainly uh, tend to do with texts, uh, different things, critical editions are uh, rest on, uh, on a basis that is different from what our ancient colleagues and our Byzantine colleagues uh, used to think. Namely, uh, we tend to uh, 
reconstruct uh, the whole manuscript transmission of uh, a, a single text to collate, mm -hmm. uh, uh, to compare all existing manuscripts to, to try and establish the relationship between uh, the mutual relationship between all existing manuscripts where possible to draw a stemma and the critical apparatus. But I mean, this is uh, something that we have been doing over the last 200 years, and uh, it is uh, a technique that would be unthinkable without, uh, not only without the material that has been uh, handed over by, by the, the Byzantines, namely the texts themselves, but also without the expertise, because uh, you were talking about this uh, this prejudice. I mean, this prejudice against the Byzantines has its roots, of course, in, in the Renaissance uh, in the West, because it, it's, it's then that things changed. But uh, if you look at the Renaissance, when the Byzantines already had this uh, sort of uh, bad uh, renown of being sort of half-literate, half they didn't, didn't really speak Latin at all, and they didn't, if, I mean, it's not only that they brought to the West in the 15th century after the fall of Constantinople, the texts in forms of codex, of codices, but they also brought with them this expertise of what to do with Greek texts, uh, which uh, uh, from which the Western scholars had a huge amount to learn. And uh, the, the praxis of, uh, uh, of collating manuscripts, of uh, uh, restoring manuscripts, of uh, what we call philological work mm. is something that uh, the West, Western scholars uh, have uh, to a great extent also learned from their Byzantine colleagues who came over to Italy uh, after the fall or shortly before, shortly after the fall of Constantinople. So it's also a matter of techniques. Of course, now we do different things because after, after a long time, we, we tend to, we have refined our methods. This is clear. But again, this is a, it is not a matter of a, a radical departure from early methods. It's a matter of innovation on an ongoing tradition. Yeah, um, and co collating manuscripts in order to produce a, a stemma uh, requires that you have some kind of basic inventory <laughs> of the or database of the manuscripts of a particular text. And to my knowledge, there was no such thing in Byzantium. Like it was all probably just oral information. Like, oh, you happen to hear that there's this text over there, and you might get two or three at most. Uh, but yeah. I don't think they ever had a comprehensive view. No, certainly not. I mean, again, as I said, the, the, the full, the collation of all the whole uh, range of existing manuscripts, but this is a very, a very recent thing, even for, yeah. for Westerners. I mean, in the, in the 17th century, no one would come to the idea of collating all existing manuscripts. It's also only at the end of the, of the 18th, early 19th, that this rule imposed itself. No, what we do find, however, is that uh, th there is a sensibility for manuscripts that is often overlooked in Byzantium for, for collating manuscripts, for copies, for collating copies. Uh, again, due to the uh, aforementioned prejudice, we tend to obliterate the fact that, for example, in um, it's not only a matter of classical texts. If, we, if you look at the, act, the acts of councils, uh, you, you, you see how many times, even back in the 7th century, mm. Dark Ages, you you find people going to, uh, to going to the library. It's written that they went to the library and uh, yeah. and fetched this book and checked the passage on the book and and just in order to establish whether that specific phrase of John Chrysostom uh, or the Gospel, for that matter, was written in a, in a proper proper way or not. So uh, the idea that uh, texts uh, evolve and have mistakes and you have always to uh, look after them is is well rooted in Byzantine society and so it's it's nothing strange when Polonudas at a certain time in the 13th century uh, comes up with 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 a Plutarch manuscript and and has this wonderful note at a certain point he he, he says uh, he writes in a, in a note that um, uh, this passage is very obscure because the text of the old copies worn away in many places does not yield a continuous and consistent sense I have seen an old book with many blank spaces left by the scribe who was unable to find the missing words but hoped perhaps to find them elsewhere. Here on the other hand in place of what was missing one finds continuous writing because there was no hope of finding the missing parts. Mm -hmm. I mean this is a philological note which is more or less a sort of paraphrasis of what you would find in a critical apparatus modern editions. This yeah. is written in 1295 probably. Yeah, what struck me in reading the acts of the ecumenical councils, I've been working on those um, at the same time as uh, writing this history of Byzantium that I'm working on, 
is that many of them were less um, theological than philological. And the theological arguments often came down to uh, a philological arguments about, is this word authentic in this text? What does your copy say? No, my copy has this. And, and it's incredible to watch the bishops essentially do philology and you know, critical, uh, en engage critically with the text uh, in the council, like they're having these long philological speeches. Um, anyway, I, 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 I don't know, but, that, but that's that's not an obvious thing. I mean, just think of this in uh, uh, just just for comparison, just think of this in in Arabic quarters or even in in in, in Jewish quarters. This is very difficult to find something yeah. of this kind. Of course, they have their different traditions, but it's uh, uh, for 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 holy texts or texts pertaining to religion. It's much more difficult to find this philological sens sensibility. Whereas this is in, in Byzantine culture, this is pervasive. So it is certainly a theocratic uh, world, as uh, whatever you like. But there is a sensitivity for the, the, the philological detail of, even of the gospel. I mean, just think of the anonymous professor. It's this guy, we don't, yeah. we don't know who he is, in the 10th century, looking for, for or being asked to, to, to produce uh, um, editions of, uh, again, theological works or, or the gospel. So it's, a, it's a, an idea that it, we, are, we are, as classicists, or specialists in classical and pagan literature, we only tend to focus on our texts. But if you get the, the bigger picture, you understand that this phenomenon is by no means limited to uh, Hesiod or Homer or, or, or Euripides. It is something that uh, is very much present in uh, the Byzantine consciousness, even for the texts they cared more for, which is, of course, yeah. are the, the, the ecclesiastical and religious texts of various kinds. Yeah, so I want the audience to come away also with some very specific examples to carry away sort of in their mind. You mentioned the Venetus Alpha of Homer, so that's great. Um, what's your favorite Byzantine lexicon or encyclopedia and why? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I have two. I'll be very brief, but I just... Uh... Uh, I mean, one, one of course is a Suda because a Suda is is just such an amazing enterprise. Uh, it's it's an encyclopedia by all means, a 10th century product uh, that was clearly, to my mind, linked uh, with the Byzantine uh, with the Byzantine court with the imperial uh, patronage, which uh, has had a certain important role in 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 that century in the uh, in the transmission of culture. And there is this encyclopedic thrust where. Uh, the, especially Constantine VII, but also other emperors of that age, uh, they tended to uh, produce uh, uh, anthologies, uh, excerpts, and again, this encyclopedia, which is extremely important for everyone, uh, because even for every classical scholar, because it has the it is the first place where you get biographies of ancient authors, for that matter. We don't have mm, any other bio-bibliographical bio, data on, on Euripides or on Aristarchus. It's it's the first place where you get them. So it's you always have to start. and You can then critique or even deconstruct completely the information you get there. But it's uh, it's an incredible source of, of knowledge. But I would say that, uh, so it, it's interesting. Suda is interesting because it has this, um, uh, it has lots of, um, uh, meanings and 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 so uh, lexical lexicographical entries, but also uh, purely encyclopedic uh, data data like uh, again entries like uh, Jesus or again Homer or whatever. And this mm. is uh, an ambitious, incredibly ambitious project. Um, but I would like to to just to mention briefly the the one lexicon which is not particularly popular. It's the Etymologicum Gudianum. It is uh, it is an etymological lexicon of the 10th century, 10 or early 11th century. Uh, which is not particularly interesting per se. It's one of those texts, uh, Lexica was mentioning earlier. Uh, what I would like to stress is that we have the very manuscript where this was produced, uh, on which the, the, the final, more or less final version of this uh, etymological was, was produced. And it's, it's touching to see how this lexicon actually came about. I mean, you have this manuscript in the Vatican Library where you see uh, exactly the procedure I was hinting at before. Um, the, the, you see this, uh, uh, the, the, uh, a basic uh, stratum of, of, of uh, an earlier, a layer, a basic layer of uh, an earlier lexicon, and then additions on all cropping up here and there in, on the page, uh, where on every blank uh, hole is then filled with, uh, with uh, small uh, uh, entries and, and additions and, and addenda. 
and uh, and then of course in later copies this is all made tidy and and tidied up and and it's, it's it, it has a, a normal transmission as a serious lexicon but where when you see where it comes from and probably there is a chance this very complicated operation you might, might imagine a, a man or a guy working with several books at the same time mm. on his desk and trying to uh, squeeze them into one and and this might have taken place in southern italy this is very debated whether this oh. is or not but the idea they're all i mean the hints uh, paleographically the paleographical analysis uh, brings us to to southern italy rather than to constantinople this is debated between scholars because there is no certainty about that but if it were true it would be all the more interesting to see how even not only in the capital, not only in Constantinople, but even in in in, in other regions of the Byzantine Empire, there was this uh, interest for not only transmitting uh, knowledge, but also producing new knowledge and and sort of yeah trying to uh, to foster erudition even in smaller centers and smaller schools and far from from the capital. Yes, nice. Um, and those are etymological that. Uh... Uh, the wrong search in the TLG will lead you deep into that world of the etymologica um, and all the dictionaries. Okay, so what's your favorite Byzantine commentary on a classical author and why? Well, uh, if I may quote a, a very uh, an, an unpublished an unpublished uh, commentary, so just to do Yo, something a little yes. the uh, the commentary by Isaac Sebastocrator or Isaac Porphyrogenitus to the Iliad is still unpublished. It still lies unpublished in a, in a manuscript in Paris. It is, uh, as far as we know, the first, the earliest commentary written in on the Iliad, full, I mean, full-fledged commentary written on the Iliad in Byzantium. It was written in the, in the 12th century, in the early 12th century. Uh, it is not particularly inspiring for classical scholars, but it is very interesting for, for cultural reasons. Because first of all, because this, this the author is not uh, is, is a very well known person. is the son of an emperor and the brother of Anna Komnene, so uh, a person who had a very high standing in uh, the Komnenian uh, dynasty in the 12th century in Constantinople and a very complicated life. Um, uh, and so you 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 ask this is one of the basic questions when people when did these people who are bishops uh, archbishops uh, uh, high I mean politicians generals when when did they find time to do this? <laughs> anyway he writes this uh, this uh, full fledged commentary to the Iliad which is not only a commentary it is a, a sort of uh, really really. Um, uh, in a sort of general edition of the of the poem, it has an introduction where, with uh, the the so-called petermisa abomea, or the the missing things, the things that Homer doesn't say, mm. uh, and so basically the antifacts of the Iliad and what you need to know in order to get into the poem, uh, and then it has also at the end a sort of. Uh, uh, appendix with the physiognomical uh, traits of the various heroes, which can always be useful. Homer does not dwell much on this, but of course the Byzantines were keen on on trying to uh, draw from the fact that Achilles is blonde, uh, what uh, his character might look like, and and so it, this is this means that he has a, a broader interest also in not only doing fine erudite work or refined erudite work on the on the poem but also on transmitting it to his own age and then what he does in in the uh, in the marginal uh, command marginal notes marginal scolia that we have uh, is that he really interacts a lot in a very sometimes very direct way with his uh, with the, with the text and when for example Hera deceives Zeus at a certain point in the there is a famous deception of Zeus in the 14th um, uh, book of the Iliad he he has long notes um, very misogynic um, misogynist note against against the power of women uh, especially through sex and so on and and he has and it clearly shows that he's taking the 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 text seriously uh, very much seriously and uh, uh, there, there are notes that uh, 
are surprising, I would just like to mention one category of notes that are completely at odds with all we know of the Greek tradition on the, on the uh, Iliad, namely Hector. The, the character of Hector is always considered as the villain in, in, uh, in Greek exegesis, in Greek commentaries ever since. Mm -hmm. uh, they tend to say that, yes, well, he's, he's certainly a valiant uh, uh, warrior, but he makes mistakes all the time. He is not, uh, he has no strategy whatsoever. And at the end, he runs away in front of Achilles out of fear. So he's not that big either and so on. So there's a long tradition of really, uh, uh, of, of, of considering Hector in a terrible way. Whereas he is probably the only person who systematically, the I know of at least, who systematically, systematically is, uh, shows how uh, how good Homer Hector is, how he shows his total, not only sympathy, but his enthusiasm with Hector, with the figure of Hector. Mm. This is something that is uh, still an unexplained to my mind. It, is, it has uh, means again that he's not simply handing over a tradition because, of course, he, he knows earlier commentaries and he sometimes shapes his own notes on earlier earlier older notes, uh, sometimes century old notes. Uh, but he also adds new things that are that correspond to his taste or to his uh, to his way of interacting with the text. And this is a very fresh approach to the text and something uh, not always presented. Eustathius is less fresh than he is, let's say. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating because modern scholarship tends to look kindly on Hector as a kind of family man who gets caught up in all of this murderous war. And, yes. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's modern, yeah. Yeah, and I'm fascinated that you would choose Isaac's work uh, to highlight this way because I only just recently put the pieces together about who he was and, and specifically his funeral arrangements and the whole contest that was going on within the Komneni about who gets to control the legacy of Alexius because neither he nor his sister Anna became the rulers. <laughs> It was yes. their brother, right, John II and Comnenus, and and both of them are trying to find these other ways to position themselves. Um, yeah. And yeah, anyway, it's a, it's a as you as you very well know that he had lots of contacts with it, with the Turks as well, and, yes. and this is something that might, to a certain extent, explain. To, because as you very well know, there's a, the old uh, habit of identifying the Greeks, uh, the, 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 the Trojans with the, with the enemies. And I don't know if those sympathies might, because it's very likely that he has written this in his last years. At least that's what we tend to, 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 to think, because he retired in a, in a monastery very close to the modern present day border between, uh, in Thrace, between, uh, uh, between Greece and, and Turkey, uh, the monastery of Vera. And uh, and there, uh, it is possible to my mind that this manuscript is is actually the copy of his own manuscript mm -hmm. preserved in in Vera. And it might be that um, I, I have this hunch that he, uh, looking back to into his life and his adventures and so on, he had a different uh, take also on on the characters of the Iliad, which means really appropriating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ancient poem. It's it's uh, it's not it's not an obvious thing. It's it's not an act of mere erudition. Yeah. So now that we're talking about the personalities of these people, um, I was just wondering. This is an odd question, but I was wondering if there was any Byzantine classical scholar whom you would either really like to have as a colleague, say mm -hmm. in a department, or whom you would really not want to have as a colleague, uh, just based on you know how you might imagine their personality from their work and their writings. Well, the, 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 there's one single scholar, the, the obvious answer to your question is uh, a colleague you would both love and <laughs> and hate at the same time is John Zitzis. Uh, he's, he's uh, you would yeah. love him for his immense, incredible erudition. I mean, he's uh, amazing because uh, the, the, the range of things that he is the only one, apparently at least the only one to know, not only in the 12th century, but in the whole of the Byzantine millennium, is really startling and uh, and yeah so the, the, this the memory that he has is, is incredible but the thing that is most significant with with Cicis is that he does not belong he's really the the the, the odd person in that uh, the, the odd item uh, he does not belong to any of the categories that are typically associated with the Byzantine scholarship. He seems to be a sort of freelance mm. and uh, he does not, he has no affiliation to the ecclesiastical hierarchy, no affiliation to the court, although the court, I mean, he tries to get someone, get, tries to get patronage and he 
succeeds for for a while, but then again he fails, and and he has a very and he the, the interesting thing is that he tells about his uh, his life uh, in relationship with uh, his studies in a way that is also very modern. I mean the the really the literatorum uh, infelicitas it's it's a it's a topos that we tend to associate with modern times but the way he's a, he's a, a really a, a scholar who who has who lived through difficult times he has had he has starved sometimes he has had very serious uh, uh, money problems and uh, but then at some time he finds good patron, patrons and has the time and leisure to uh, to uh, write uh, to to study, and then when he does, uh, what he produces commentaries on Aristophanes, commentaries on, on Homer, commentaries on Lycophron, uh, on all sorts of authors. Those are masterpieces. I mean, you really understand, you really wonder where he had all these books, because this is right. not an easy, an obvious question. Because if you had the patriarchal library at your disposal, it's good. But if you, if you had if you could not rely on institutions. Uh, you really wonder how it's like full of admiration how he could possibly uh, know so much about uh, ancient sources uh, to the point of being the only one who was reading uh, the, uh, the at least at least the first book of the uh, ancient lyric Hipponax. Uh, in the Hipponax is a uh, guy who wrote in the eighth century uh, in the seventh century sorry uh, BCE and uh, of whom we do not have anything but uh, some fragments today and uh, it is absolutely clear from what Cecil writes that he was uh, probably the last person I don't know but he to own and to read uh, mm. few poems of him which is uh, entire poems of him which is also it's also interesting because it's a kind of personality both Hipponax and Cecil are sort of very difficult personalities oh yes you have yes. to complain with everything and they're not very satisfied with their life and, uh, yeah. and, and basically also to have this rivalry also very interesting the rivalries with uh, with his predecessors in in scholarship and with his colleagues i mean Tzitzis is all the time complaining that he's uh, surrounded by a mass of ignorant colleagues and so on that's why in a department it would be difficult to have him uh, but on the other hand you would certainly profit from his scholarship and from his learning Yes, I imagine him as taking easily to Twitter <laughs> in order to yes. abuse his colleagues <laughs> with, yeah, yeah. No, he could condense so many insults into, I don't know, 100 characters. 100 characters, yes. <laughs> Probably with just one or two words. He was also fond of its maximum. Yes. Long, very long words full of insults. It was clear. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I can imagine him as keeping human resources uh, very busy. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, so... A big question now, sort of zooming out, um, why uh, did the Byzantines study these classical texts and produce all of this scholarship? It is a labor-intensive and can be very expensive uh, project um, and activity. So what benefits did they collectively think they were getting from it? I mean, as a society, generally, obviously not everybody's investing in this sort of thing, um, but enough institutions and wealthy people did. Why did they do that? Why did they keep all this stuff? Why do they keep talking about classical texts? Well, this is a very complicated uh, yeah. um, question, as you know. You've written books on this, so it's. Uh, I would just uh, to to keep things to really to the to a minimum. I would say this: um, the uh, Byzantine uh, culture uh, had uh, gave a huge importance to uh, speaking to rhetoric, to the ways in which you persuade other people and the ways in which you speak uh, in a persuasive way in front of others. Uh, This was particularly true and was actually one of the main instruments of power for the ruling elite, both in terms of ecclesiastical elite and in terms of uh, uh, secular elite. Um, uh, Both emperors and uh, and, uh, patriarchs and archbishops had to be able to speak well and to write well in order to to, um, preserve their power, basically. So if this is the principle at that time, at that point, you have, uh, I mean, the tools you have to uh, handle for for this goal uh, are necessarily uh, the best works, the best uh, language, the best style you can possibly get hold of. And all of this, the best style, the best language and the best works 
they, the Byzantine culture, despite the fact it was a deeply Christian culture, still believed that uh, to identify with uh, the uh, classical heritage, at least with part of the classical heritage. Uh, and this is, of course, something that has to do perhaps less with what we now uh, look for in, in, in these, uh, in these uh, texts, in Greek texts, ancient Greek texts, but is still a very important part of these texts. So uh, once you read um, Plato or Demosthenes uh, or, or Aristophanes in order to know how you uh, can write a proper attic and you can how you can impress other people with uh, um, a refined style uh, and good oratory uh, you are in a way also uh, uh, making uh, some characters and features of those texts of those ancient texts to emerge and this is why there are approaches uh, scholarly approaches to these texts in terms of uh, again lexicography, rhetoric, rhetorical studies, grammatical handbooks uh, that are immensely influential and important, were influential for even nowadays. I mean, they're still important in order to, to get us to grasp the workings of these, uh, of ancient uh, style and of ancient language. So uh, it, it is not, uh, there is a, ten, a tendency to say, well, they were just looking at the form, they didn't care for the content. This is, this is really a very, very artificial uh, mm. division. And I find that uh, this, uh, it is true that of course, this entails the, uh, not the censorship, not the elimination, but the uh, neglect of some authors. This happens, uh, it happened in antiquity, just as much as it happened in Byzantine times, because mm -hmm. in the third century, already there were already uh, uh, texts that were no longer read in third century rome ennius was barely read so it's it's just that it, things this kind of neglect is is inevitable as time goes by um it is true that focusing on a specific curriculum that was particularly uh, suitable for those goals for um, rhetorical stylistic grammatical goals clearly limited in a way the range of texts were uh, but still the the, the, not, the the amount of texts that were nonetheless transmitted was uh, really remarkable, and uh, and so in in this way I think this was an enterprise that was uh, always backed by institutions uh, as opposed to what happened in the West, and this is this must be, this is a basic um, uh, difference uh, from from the Latin tradition where you have monasteries or isolated initiatives, whereas if you have uh, with different intensity over time, but you have the the, the empire, the imperial school, or the patriarchal academy, and and the bishoprics and so on that who clearly are uh, institutionally caring for uh, the survival of these texts, then of course, uh, yeah. these texts are secured a much easier life. Uh, yeah, um, I was wondering if I could add something to that and, and or run it by you. you. You tell me what you think, because I have the impression, I've always had it, that there's a misalignment between the way we approach classical texts and the kind of uh, interest that we have in them and the way in which Byzantine scholars engage with them, which is that their um, emphasis was far more on the uh, on the pleasure of the style, um, right? Like like burrowing into the language of an author and appreciating the particularities of that author's style was an just an inherent pleasure in doing that. Um, and you can see that in Photius's uh, right his reviews of all the ancient books. He's trying to classify their style, and because their intuitive appreciation of Greek um, was like superior to ours, Absolutely. I'm not sure that there are many scholars today who can appreciate stylistics, right, on that level. And we, we kind of miss that aspect. And, and it would almost be akin to like appreciating music or art, right? Like it, it was something of that um, it, it involved because they keep talking about the pleasure that they get from the logoi, right? And reading, right? Um, is that well, how would you respond to that? I mean, that's just a personal thing I mind. Well, it goes exactly in the same line I was trying to uh, to uh, highlight before. It's just that, uh, what, again, Planudis, I will quote a sentence of Planuda. We should note uh, that the reading of Hellenic literature has always been an object of longing and delight for lovers of learning and particularly mm. the of the poem of Homer because of the grace and variety of the language. Uh, this is, uh, I mean, but this is something that is, it, it is not... Uh, 
sort of extrapolated or interpolated from the outside. It's something that is, the, the qualities that are, I mean, the, the essays on style by Sellers, by Michael Sellers, for example, on the style of Euripides and, or, or, it's, it, or of, or, of the Byzantine novelists, uh, they show a, an awareness of uh, the workings of uh, Greek language and Greek uh, style, uh, both in prose and in, and in poetry, uh, that is really hard to uh, gain even for, for us modern scholars who basically speak yeah, a yeah. different language. And it's uh, so it, uh, this should not be, again, uh, sort of... Uh, thought of as a marginal kind of marginal interest of only servile interest, subservient to other. Mm. It's, it's something that has to do with the very uh, literary quality of uh, the text we are dealing with. Of course, then the message that they carried, some of them carried, uh, was perhaps less successful in Byzantine quarters. I may, may say that Lysistrata was probably not taken at face value for, for the message it could convey. Sure. Uh, but still, it, it style and, and the pleasure of style and the ability also of getting, as you were saying, uh, into the working. So that's why also we, Planudas also writes a grammar and so many people write a grammar or a syntax or a, or engage in writing lexical like Fortius himself, for example. Yeah. Uh, they, they are clearly reading these texts in order to understand better the way you should write and way you should uh, uh, um, speak in a, in a pleasant and persuasive way. Yeah, and I read the rhetorical commentaries and manuals um, in, in, in that way as it sort of attempts to try to capture the style uh, of an author beyond the actual grammar. Um, and that is perhaps something that we can do in our native languages, for example. Like if you take Gibbon and Hemingway, who are both English, right? But anyone experienced in reading English literature will be able to say, oh, this style is more, you know, does these kinds of things and it's completely different register from the other one. Uh, but it's so difficult for us to do that with um, not just ancient Greek, but Byzantine Greek as well, like, because they, they, they aimed to replicate those stylistic modes. Um, and I, I just find that very difficult. And, and we haven't, I think, as a field made uh, tremendous advances in, in that direction. I mean, there are very few people who can do it. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, uh, so I, I want to move on to another topic because we're almost uh, running out of time. But this is also very important. And you just mentioned it now that this is a Christian society. And yet uh, most of the texts that they're studying are uh, written in antiquity. Um, if they're not overtly pagan, they nevertheless come from a you know pre-Christian uh, uh, social context. Now, obviously, the Byzantine scholars who choose to invest a lot of time and work on these texts are not going to be too troubled by that. Um, but surely it came up in their work in some way. So where do you see some sort of striking examples of Byzantine scholars who are kind of working around the, the gods or the paganism in, in their material? How do they cope with that? Well, um, there, are, there are different strategies to do this, of course, uh, also depending on what kind of text you're dealing with. I mean, Plato was a particularly difficult text, not only for its paganism, but for its philosophy, basically. And this, yes. this is a different issue. I mean, Plato has always been a problem. For everybody. Uh, for, for everybody, <laughs> exactly. Uh, if you are talking about uh, mythology, which is perhaps the, the easiest, uh, the, the most evident uh, problem in the polytheism and the story uh, about, about the gods. Well, uh, I think allegory certainly plays an important role. And you do have a whole strand of uh, Byzantine allegorists uh, who are very, uh, in, in the tradition, there are lots of histories of allegory where the Byzantine uh, cote has very as a very, very minor place. But in fact, there are ways of, uh, first of all, of telling the story of Homer. That's what Manuel Gabalas, for example, does in the early 13th, early 14th century. Uh, the story of Homer without uh, making any reference to the gods and thus mm. rationalizing whatever it is. I mean, if, if you find Athena, you, you simply think that, you simply say that uh, the, re the reason, the, the, the mind of this, of, this, um, of, the, of this or that character uh, has done this or that, so it's a way of rationalizing the gods and their interventions. This is, uh, or else you really, you really build uh, uh, allegorical uh, uh, interpretations, uh, be be they uh, physical or or psychological or whatever uh, uh, interpretations on the, the gods. The gods mean something else. This is a strategy that was 
as old as uh, as, as Greek uh, culture itself. It, it was again nothing nothing new. It could be used when it came to uh, difficult moments, and uh, uh, it could be used. Uh, although I must say that the most serious scholars uh, they resort to it only in in cases of real, of, of emergency. They they don't use it systematically. I mean, you Stathios or Tsitsis, they they have no special sympathy for allegory. They, they do use it sometimes, but uh, I mean, yeah, of course, when there is uh, something that loves of Aries and Aphrodite, of course, then at that, that point, if there, there are very difficult, uh, but these were the very difficult uh, uh, passages that were difficult even for Plato, for ancient authors as well, because uh, the, the problems we have, Christian uh, society has with, um, uh, with the gods uh, are, not that dissimilar to problems that also ancient societies had mm. with stories about the gods, yeah, which yeah. are always full of very strange sexual adventures or very improper um, behaviors of, of these uh, or that um, characters. So it's, um, uh, I think that uh, certainly there was no uh, programmatic hostility, save of course some rare cases and uh, no censorship for that matter, which is also striking to a certain extent. No, it's a, you could expect this to happen, but it does not happen. And, uh, and there are strategies that that uh, to to yeah to just uh, not to highlight the uh, the most disturbing elements, but uh, I think that it's 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 uh, uh, again the, the stylistic and rhetorical and and gain that there is to be uh, uh, drawn from reading these texts is far superior to any possible uh, danger uh, they could uh, they could uh, infer uh, there are. There are, like in the West, some scholars who um, who uh, sometimes hesitate. Uh, am I becoming like Matthew of Ephesus, Manuel Gabalas? He writes in a letter. Um, am I appreciating Homer too much? Am I becoming too yeah, yeah. Uh, like Petrarch? Like but uh, but this it's it's very rare. It, it happens rarely, and certainly the, because the debate was settled very early on with Saint Basil was very settled very early on with the church fathers in the, in the Greek yeah. East and uh, had much more, much less, uh, uh, it, it settled the, the frame, the cultural frame for a judicious and wise use of the ancient material uh, much, in a much uh, uh, stronger and more solid way than in the, in the West. So in the end, uh, it was not such a huge problem as we could expect. Yeah, no, you're quite right, especially about the censorship. And perhaps we haven't even thought about that as much as we should, that, that it didn't really happen. And as you were speaking, I was struck because I remember the um, example of the so the late philosopher Plethon in the 15th century, who in some respects had broken with Christianity and who was a kind of like a Neoplatonist in his philosophy. He actually did uh, censor passages of Herodotus that he found were sort of in a inappropriate given his con platonic conception of the gods because Herodotus is saying some pretty pre-platonic things. I think this is, it's Fabio Pagani has written about how Plethon is sort of striking out lines of Herodotus and rewriting them to make them more, yeah. And, well, and that's not by an orthodox scholar. <laughs> No, no. Well, he paid for this. In, he, he was, I mean, he, had, he, he ran into serious trouble himself. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Not for his readings of Herodotus. But, when you yeah. start doing this, then you, you often fall the victim of your own methods. So. <laughs> um, yeah, that's great. Um, any final thoughts? Because we're almost out of time. Um, where does the discipline go from here? Or any last thoughts you would like to convey to the audience? Well, I think that uh, it should be, uh, I mean, studying these, uh, uh, these manuscripts, studying these uh, scholars, Byzantine scholars, should make us realize uh, how much we are indebted to them and how much uh, we are, there is, a, again, this, this continuity. I will mention just one manuscript because it's, it's nice to, I think, to, on, to end on it, uh, which is, again, preserved 200 meters from here in a much Anna library. It, it is a manuscript uh, carrying the first uh, uh, Latin translation of, uh, the, of the Odyssey. Uh, the first after centuries. I mean, the Latin Middle Ages did not know at all the text of Homer, and a certain time in the 1360s, it was translated back into Latin for the first time from the Greek. And uh, this was the initiative of uh, a Greek 
uh, a Greek person, Leoncio Pilato, a very strange guy, uh, used formerly thought to come from southern Italy, probably now he probably came from Greece proper. Anyway, he worked in southern Italy. He then was hired by Francesco Petrarca and Giovanni Boccaccio, so the founders, founding fathers of uh, Western humanism in Florence in the 1360s. And we have a manuscript where you have uh, a, a Byzantine scholar, because Leontius Pilatus is a Byzantine scholar, copying out the text, adding notes that clearly come scolia, marginal scholia, that are clearly derive from a century old tradition that can be traced back to the Hellenistic times. And then in between the lines writing a, a Latin, very, very bad, awful, but word for word Latin translation of the Greek, which is anyway, much better than nothing. And so the, the and, and, and performing that's a task uh, from which both Petrarch and Boccaccio, who left their own notes on that manuscript, is I discovered Petrarch's hand and a colleague of mine discovered Boccaccio's hand. <laughs> so on this very manuscript, you get a sense of what it means, a tradition that is uninterrupted between Byzantium and the uh, Italian humanism, Italian Renaissance, and so the Western world. Uh, it's And this kind of exchange is visible in that manuscript, but is less visible, uh, but took place all the same in, in hundreds of other cases. And it's basically to this exchange that we owe what we are today. That's a wonderful place on which to end this. Uh, Filippo Maria, thank you so much uh, for appear coming on to the podcast. Also for writing the survey, I dove into it like it was a jar of cookies. <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll, I'll reference it in the episode description. So hopefully others will go read it. Uh, thank you so much again. Thanks to you, Anthony. It was a pleasure. Thank you.